Good morning. My name is Stevie Franks, and welcome to Grace City Online. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Grace City. I work with our students, and uh, we're so glad that you've chosen to join us uh, this morning, whether on Facebook or on YouTube. This past week, uh, we lost a country music legend uh, named Charlie Daniels. I don't know if you're familiar with country music at all or even know who he is, but he was an icon and uh, has some very popular songs. Uh, and growing up in Mississippi, you know, you, you kind of are forced to listen to Charlie Daniels almost. But this past week, with, uh, with him passing at age 83, I was reflecting and thinking back on his most popular song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. And if you don't know about that song, it's, it's kind of a, it's a weird song, but it's, it's a fun song that tells a story about the devil, obviously, going down to Georgia and uh, meeting a, a young boy named Johnny who was playing a fiddle. And the devil challenged Johnny to a fiddling uh, contest because apparently the devil plays the fiddle. Who knew? But uh, and so the, the contest was that, that if Johnny won, then he would win a, 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 this awesome fiddle made of gold. And if the devil won, then he would win Johnny's soul. So very weird song when you really describe it like that, right? It's kind of weird. But uh, I was just kind of reflecting on that song this week, uh, and then in, especially in light of the text that we're in this morning, and thinking about how you know, Johnny, the theology behind that song of, of Johnny was like negotiating with the devil, right? And, and, and gambling with the devil and, uh, and very interesting, very weird. And I don't, not that I think, I don't think any of us, any of you are out there negotiating with the devil, right? But, but as we dive into the text this morning, I think what we'll see is that, that m- most of us, probably unknowingly most of the time, negotiate with God a lot. And, uh, and we, we do it far more often than we probably realize. And what I mean by that is, right, we, we come to God and we surrender to him, but we don't fully surrender to him, right? We, we kind of negotiate a little bit. We, we give and take a little bit. And, and so today we're going to be in this passage in Luke chapter 9, where we see Jesus calling his disciples, um, calling not, not his the 12 disciples, but calling some, some new followers of Christ to follow after him and forsake all else. And so as we are on week two of Jesus the teacher, we'll see that, that Jesus is calling us to follow him with whole surrender, complete surrender. And, uh, and that's the cost of discipleship. And what I mean by discipleship is discipleship is this process of us in life of following after Christ and beginning and, and, and being shaped and, and molded into his image. And that only happens through following him. So that's what I mean by discipleship. So Jesus is teaching us on this cost of discipleship. And what we'll see through this um, the scripture is we'll see that Jesus requires us to fully surrender to him, but in return, we receive something so amazing. And that, that's him, right? That, that is his amazing grace and his amazing calling on our lives. Let me pray for us as we get started. God, we thank you uh, so much just for uh, this day and just the many blessings uh, that you give your children and uh, many that we don't even deserve. Many times uh, we turn and we, we walk away from you. We don't fully surrender and we don't even realize we're doing it. But God, I pray that as we dive into this text this morning, we see and we hear your word, that you would uh, speak to us through your word and that you would show us um, the, the type of life, the type of discipleship that you are calling us to in our life and that we would be obedient and follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We'll uh, 
we're going to break it up into, into three sections here because Luke gives us three instances of um, three different people coming to Jesus and wanting to follow after Jesus. And I don't think these happen like simultaneously, but Luke kind of paired them all, grouped them all together right here in Luke chapter nine. And so we're going to dive into the first one in verses 57 and 58. So read with me. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Right, so this guy is, is coming after Jesus. He, he wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, hold up, guy. Like, hold up, dude. Let me tell you the reality of what that looks like. So we actually know because this same instance is, is captured in Matthew's gospel in chapter eight, that this was actually a scribe. So a scribe was someone who had devoted themselves to the law, to the law um, of God. And so they were very, you know, pursuing the Lord. They were some religious leaders of the day. So they would often kind of align themselves with the very prominent teacher, almost become part of, you know, the posse of a popular teacher. And so then they would come and come with a group. And, and as the teacher would, would receive fame, the, the whole group would kind of receive fame as well. And so we kind of see that, that this teacher, I mean, the scribe it had heard Jesus teaching, right? He obviously kind of had understood a little bit of who Jesus was and the power and the authority that he taught with. And so he, he wants that, right? He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to, to latch his wagon to wherever Jesus is going, he thinks. And so he calls after and says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus' response to this man was one of reality. This was one of, man, like, I don't think you really understand what you're asking, right? Because Jesus knew his heart, right? Jesus would have known kind of his desires and this man, the scribe, and, and kind of what he was really asking. And so Jesus knew that comfort was something that, that was going to get in the way of his true discipleship and his true following after Jesus. So what does Jesus say? He says, let me tell you what that really looks like. Because if you fall after me, the son of man, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. And what we see, one thing interesting is that Jesus uses the title son of man to describe himself. You've probably heard this before. Jesus uses it numerous times. And when Jesus uses this title to, to, uh, for himself, it is a messianic title, right? So it carries with it all this weight that uh, goes back to the prophet Daniel and prophesying of the coming Messiah. And so when Jesus calls himself the son of man, that's carrying with it this idea of, of one, his heavenly origin, then his earthly mission, and then lastly, his future glorious coming. So all that is kind of jam-packed into that phrase, son of man. So it has meaning behind it. It's not just three words, right? So Jesus says, you want to follow after me? Let me tell you, the son of man, me, has nowhere to lay my head. Like me, the Messiah, right? The one who has come into the world, ushered in the kingdom of God, coming to set the captives free. That Messiah, the son of man, I have nowhere to raise to put my head at night. You want to follow after me? Like in so many words, Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me, you better count the cost, right? Like you better kind of weigh it and decide this is really what you want because I know you and comfort is probably going to get in the way, right? And so this actually rings uh, forward to some of Jesus's words uh, in Luke's gospel as well. Uh, just flipping over to Luke 14, Jesus is teaching again about the cost of being a disciple. And read what he says in, in, in Luke 14, starting in verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fella began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or suppose a king is able to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has, everything he has, cannot be my disciple. That's pretty lofty words there from Christ, right? So he's telling the story of, of kind of, you know, weighing this, understanding what you're getting into. And then he has, says that phrase of, unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. So before you follow after Christ, before you surrender to him, you better understand what that requires. Because following Jesus, it doesn't just cost a lot, right? It costs everything, right? It's coming to Jesus with open hands saying, God, here is all of me. You take all of me and give me back what you desire. Right? That, that's a difficult thing to do, but that's what discipleship is. That's what following after Jesus truly looks like. And Jesus is telling this, the scribe coming to him, wanting to follow him, that it's going to cost you everything. You, you must be willing to give up everything to follow after me, even comfort. Secondly, we see another man coming and uh, wanting to follow Jesus in verse 59. We'll pick up. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So another man comes and, and he obviously desires to follow after Christ, right? Because Jesus says, follow me. And he's like, okay, yeah, I, I want to Jesus. But first, right? Like there's a caveat, like first I need to go and bury my father. So scholars are actually split on whether uh, Jesus is, uh, or whether the, the man's father here is, is already dead or if he, um, and, you know, and, and the man is going to, to, to fulfill his duties as the son and uh, help with the burial process of his father. And others say that, that his, his father isn't yet dead, but he's on his deathbed. And so he's asking to go and kind of be with his father in his father's last days. And so they're kind of split. Um, I would say, just in my opinion, I think his father was near death because I think if his father had already died, I don't think he would be here you know, listening and, and listening. He would already be there. Um, but you could go either way with that. But, but the point is still the same. Right, that this, this man, he wanted to follow Jesus, but Christ said, okay, come, come follow me now. And he's got, hold on, like, I, got to, I have to go and fulfill my duty as a son. And some scholars even say that probably part of that of him going and needing to be there with his father at his death would also um, be a requirement for him to, to receive his inheritance. And so part of this could also be motivated by his uh, desire for, for wealth and, and for his inheritance. So, so for this guy for, to follow after Jesus, what was getting in the way for him was his duty and money. And wealth, right? And so we see something coming in the way that he was not willing to depart and, and, and give Jesus everything. And then Jesus tells him this phrase that it seems kind of harsh from the outset, right? He says, let the dead bury their own dead. See, what Jesus is saying here in, in, the, in the Greek is an idiom where he is literally saying, like, let the spiritual dead bury the physical dead, right? So let those who, who are not spiritually alive bury those who are, who are dead. And what he means by that is, as for you, Right? If you want to follow after me, that means you're spiritually alive because that's what he has come to do, right? And so you have something else that's more important to do than going and burying the physical dead. What is that? He says it right there in verse 60, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, let the spiritual dead bury the physical dead, but for you, 
If you're spiritually alive, go and proclaim the kingdom of God because it's at hand, right? This is something that is the utmost importance that, that God has come to earth in the flesh, right? The son of man is coming to set the captives free to bring life to those who are dead in their sins and to bring us back to our father. That's what Christ came to do. And so it was at hand. Jesus said, come and follow me and be a part of proclaiming this kingdom. And the guy says, I can't, but first, like, let me go do something else that's more important, right? And, and uh, so it's, it's this idea that for a Christ follower, for someone who wants to come after Jesus and you, you, you want to be sold out and living your life for Christ, that means that he is in all and is, is all for us, right? Nothing else is coming in the way. There's a lot of great things that can, right? That, that you know, for a Christ follower, that we have to be so careful about our priorities, right? And that, that if Christ is our primary motivation, our primary focus in life, then these secondary duties that we have, they can so easily rise up. You know what I mean, right? Like it's so easy to let the focus of being a parent or the focus of, of being a friend or the focus of, of being a, a sports fan or, or, any, or a, you know, whatever your career is, it's so easy to let these duties that we have that are important for them to kind of weasel in and, and take that top priority away from Christ in our lives. And what that becomes is idolatry because they're idols, right? Getting in the way of our pursuit of Christ and our discipleship. So we have to be careful of those things. You know that our ultimate duty is to follow after Christ and his desires for our lives. And the same kind of um, line with, with family continues on with, with the third guy. Read verse 61 and 62. It says, still another said, I will follow you. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So once again, this guy, he doesn't have a dying father, but he's like, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you as well. But first I need to go say goodbye to my family. Right? I need to go let them know where I'm going. I need to go deuces up. And this wasn't probably just like a, hey guys, I'm leaving, going to follow Jesus, catch you on the flip. Like it was more of like a probably going and staying for a prolonged amount of time so that you could just spend that last bit of time with your family. And so Jesus is saying, what's important to you? Right? Family can be important, but I am calling you to be a part of the kingdom of God and proclaiming it and following me. If that's not important, then you got some priorities wrong in your life. Right? And, and I want to be clear here that, that Jesus is not, um, he is not contradicting himself. He's not contradicting the commandment to honor our father and mother. Right, that Jesus is clear in many other places in the Gospels that we're to honor our father and mother, to love our families. That scripture is clear that we're to serve our families. That's one of our first ministries. But in this moment, Jesus himself was calling this man to come and follow him because the kingdom of God was at hand. And he chose to have other priorities. So that's, that's the problem. And one thing we see here is that delayed obedience to God is still disobedience. Right, delayed obedience is still disobedience. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, think about like in college, you know, like, okay, I know I need to get serious about my faith now. You know, I'm not in high school anymore, I'm in college, but it's busy, right? I got studying to do, I got stuff to do. Like, I'll get serious about the Lord when I graduate and when I get married. <laughs> then you get married 
And you're like, oh, man, okay, yeah, this is, this is tough. I'll, I know I need to read my Bible. I know I need to pray, but I'll get more serious about my faith and go to church when we have a kid. <laughs> I'm, I'm six months in, and let me tell you, it is no easier. It is way more difficult, right? And it's never easier. And it's so easy to put it off and put it off and put it off. And, and so we, we, we have this delayed disobedience. Like, God, I will obey you one day. Like, right now, I'm just, I got to focus on my career. Right now, I got to focus on this. Like, I can't share the gospel right now because people are mad and, and they may, you know, get upset or I don't want to lose my job or, or whatever it is. Like, delayed obedience is still disobedience. God is calling us to obey him now in the present. And nothing is more important than following after Christ in obedience. And, that, and it's difficult. Like, I, I'm the world's worst of, of putting things off, right? And but we have to be obedient now in the present. Because Jesus then uses this parable of a man plowing, right? He says in verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So he uses this kind of parable of a man plowing. And in the New Testament times, it would have been, it was very difficult to plow, right? They didn't have the John Deere tractor, right? They didn't have Keen Chesney singing the song about it. Uh, they had to plow with a physical plow, right? And so it was this piece of, of metal or, or wood that was in the ground. And so it would take two hands. So one hand would be on the plow and they would have to like put all their weight on the plow as the blade dug into the earth. And the other hand was used to prod the oxen along, right? So it was a very taxing job, very difficult. And on top of that, you had to plow in a straight line. And so that was very difficult as well because if you didn't plow the line in a straight line, then you would throw off the rest of the whole field and all the crops, right? So what they would do many times was they would pick something in, in, in the distance and uh, whether it be a rock or a sticker or something, and that would kind of be their guiding marker. And so they would, they would go toward that and that would help them have a straight line as they, they would plow the field. And, and so Jesus is saying, Right, like no one who puts their hand in the plow and looks back, who gets distracted, who doesn't focus on the job at hand, like is fit, right? And I, if you're like me, like I'm, my mind's ringing to Philippians three, where Paul says, if you want to turn there, it's in Philippians three, verses thirteen and fourteen, where Paul writes, "Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead." I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All right, so Paul says, I'm straining forward to this goal that I have in my sights, right? And what's the goal? The goal is to know Christ, right? The goal is to partake in his resurrection, to be a part of what Christ is and what he is doing, right? That's the goal. And Paul is saying, that's my goal. That's where I'm focused, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And what I love about that Philippians verse is that the, the Greek word there for goal is skopos, which is where we get the English word scope, right? And it's just this beautiful imagery of, of what's our goal in life? Like where, where are we focused in on, right? Where, where are we headed toward? Is it Christ? Like are we, are we plowing the field straight at Christ and, and doing what he has called us to do? Because if not, Jesus says, anyone who looks back is not, is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. If we have other distractions, right? If, if what's in our scope right now is just, you know, uh, finishing school, or if what's in our scope right now is just getting through the pandemic, or is if what's in our scope right now, right, just, just keeping our kids from killing each other, right? Or, or keep it, making them professional athletes one day, or making a lot of money, or, be, you know, having a nice retirement. If that's what's the thing in our scopes, then we have it wrong. We're wrong. It doesn't make those things bad, 
right? And I hope, I hope we understand that. I hope I'm clear in that, that Jesus isn't saying it's, it's wrong to have a home, right? He's not saying it's wrong to have a savings account. He's not saying it's wrong to have a family and to care for your family. All those things are good and being faithful and good stewards. But the problem is when those things come in the way of our pursuit of Christ and what he has called us to do. Because that, that is the utmost important thing for us as followers of Christ, right? Like if we are to be Christians, to be little Christ, to be ones who are seeking after him, then that has to be our aim. It's not secondary, it's primary in our lives. It has to be as a church, right? And that we've seen far too many churches fall and, 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 and crumble because their pursuit and their aim was not the work of Christ and knowing him. Right, and far too many lives and marriages and, and, and things in our own life that I get distracted and I go off the path because I get focused on other things and myself and not Christ. And it's in those moments where I, where I fall because I have my scope on the wrong thing. Right? It's not on the goal at all. So we, we have to do that. And, and man, especially right now, right? where we are as a church, where we are as a nation and as a, as a culture, that, that it, we, have, we have to refocus. It's 2020, right? <laughs> on, uh, on Christ. And that's one of my biggest fears is, is where we are as a people is that, you know, we, we tend to be a Jesus plus something. Like I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower plus a husband. I'm a Jesus follower plus a parent. I'm a Jesus follower plus an American or, where, or put wherever you are there, right? And, and that's not the way it is. That's not how it should be. What I mean by that is when we become a follower of Jesus, he us pursuing him, he becomes the lens in which we see everything else. It's not a Jesus plus this, and we're figuring out how to mesh that together, right? Like, how am I this and a Christian? Like, no, 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 I am a Christian, and that, and that affects, my, my pursuit of Christ affects everything else. So I'm a Christ follower, and, and through those lens do I love my child and parent my child. I'm a Christ follower, and through those lens do I perform my duties as a husband and love Haley as Christ loves the church, right? It's through the lens of being a Christ follower that I, I work out how I'm an American and I, I love those who, who are different than me. I love those who, who disagree with me, right? Who we might not fall on the same spectrum, but it's okay because my utmost identity is Christ. And that's the priority, right? And, and so we have to, to hone in our scope on who we are. And that's following after him, being a Christ follower, pursuing Christ. And we've, you know, we, we've fed into these lies of, and Matt Chandler says it this way. He says that partial surrender, one of the, one of the worst you know, errors of the church today is that partial surrender has been <clears throat> defined as Christianity. What he means by that is, that we've taken, you know, we've, we've allowed people to say, Jesus, I love you. I'm baptized. I want to be saved. I'm going to heaven, but I'm still going to hold on to this, right? Partial surrender. And we call that Christianity and it's not, right? That, that when we come to Jesus and we come to him and we follow after him, Jesus says, I want you all. I want all of you, right? Surrender. And it, when we surrender to Christ, Christianity is not, we give Jesus everything, but we keep our sexuality, or we give Jesus everything, or we keep how we spend our money. We give Jesus everything, but we keep what we do on the weekends, right? Like we keep how we raise our child. We keep all these other things. Like, no, we give Jesus everything. That's Christianity. That's discipleship, right? And then he 
puts back what he desires in our lives. Right, that this text in Luke chapter nine has shown us that following after him means full surrender and there's no negotiating, right? There is no Johnny and the devil negotiating over a golden fiddle, right? Like when it comes to God, there is no negotiation. He wants all of you. He wants all of me. And now everything has changed in light of that. Now he's the lens in which I interact with the world around me, right? So it's not wrong to have a job, but my purpose of having a job or a career is not to make money, but my purpose for a career is for a place where I can have influence and, and be on, on mission for the Lord, right? Like it's not my job to have a parent, to be as a parent, to raise up great kids who, who uh, are great at sports and are smart in school and make great on their ACTs. And those things are good, but my primary role as a parent is to raise up warriors for Christ, right? And like everything, everything is a trickle down of our relationship and our pursuit of Christ and our commitment to him. That's what, that's what it's all about. Now, as we wrap up, and I know I may be beating a dead horse here, but I want to close with looking at what this looks like and what we receive in return, right? Because it's not just us giving up everything and us woe is us, but what we receive in return when we surrender to the Lord is far better than what we give up. And what that is, is a costly grace. What do I mean by that? In the early 20th century, there was a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in, in that book, he talks about cheap grace versus costly grace, right? And cheap grace is kind of what I've been talking about, right? It's, it's you know, salvation without repentance. It's, it's, you know, heaven without everything, all the, the hard things that come along with it. It's, it's, it's the, you know, the the treasures of Christ without the pursuit of him and without the sacrifices, all those things. But costly grace is something completely different, but that's what we get when we surrender to the Lord. So what is costly grace? Here's the quote from Bonhoeffer. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it causes us to follow and it is grace because it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life and his grace because it, gave, it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Right, that God saw us in our sinful state. And he didn't look on us in condemnation, but instead he looked on us in love and grace. And he sent his son to this earth to live the life that we couldn't, to die the, to die the death on our behalf and the raise from the dead. So now in him, we have life, right? In him, we have way back to the father. In him now, we can discover life through him because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's, that's costly grace. And that now we live our lives in light of that, following after him, trusting him, right? And, and it's, <laughs> I'm, like as I look at the media and as we, you know, you turn on the TV and see what's going on in our world, it can, it can be so defeating, right? We can feel like, man, what's the point? You know, what's the point in all this? Like every, everybody else is just throwing their hands up and doing what's right to themselves. Shouldn't I? But no, like God is calling us to this relationship with him. This amazing 
this journey on our lives of where we surrender to him and he gives us his costly grace and we are able to partake in that. And though, and though the world outside may not understand and they may be going the opposite way, but we can be change agents through him right, as we work and live in a way that's showing him. And so what happens, we surrender, we give up our lives to him and then what we receive is that costly grace that allows us to discover life in him and then we get to join in in his redeeming work, right? We get to be a part of what he's doing. So now as, as we see the injustices in the world, as we see people on the wrong path, as we see people headed to their own destruction, we can be people that say, hey, let me tell you about this truth that I have, that I found and the only, the only way I got it was not because of anything I did, because I surrendered and I chose to trust in him. And this grace that I received is far better than anything else that I could have ever imagined. Let me pray. God, thank you uh, just for costly grace. Thank you for the fact that, that uh, you gave up everything. You gave up your son's life for us. And then in return, we we're able to discover life in you, God. And so I pray as we go through this life and the trials and the, the temptations and just the the difficulty of, of dealing with people who are different than us and who disagree with us, that, that we're able to love, we're able to show mercy and grace, and above all, as we surrender ourselves to you, we will become instruments of your grace in this world. And that we would experience that costly grace that only comes through surrendering our lives to fully, fully following after you. And that's the true path of discipleship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.